Well, good morning, Redeemer. We are all feeling fresh and healthy and happy, I'm sure. Or we're limping along either way. It's good to see you all. Merry Christmas. Yeah, so in the world of the church, the life of the church, it technically is actually Christmas now. When I saw you all last on the 24th, that was the last Sunday of Advent. Christmas began on the 25th and goes through the 6th. I, I know that the Christmas is not necessarily kept in the same way by everyone. We here at Redeemer are not just pro-Christmas. We are fanatically pro-Christmas. We are weapons-grade Christmas around here. Uh, and just so you, some of you are new here, just understand it. Uh, Paul is very clear. You know, some Christians call one day holier than another. Some people say that all days are the same, and that's fine. Each household should keep Christmas in its own way. But the traditions of Christmas are actually well-established, actually more well-established than the arguments against it. What's funny for us is Calvin was actually one of the people who was most opposed to Christmas during the Reformation, which is why I don't always quote him as much. <laughs> but I, I like, there's this meme I just saw this week, right? Of course this is ours. We're, we're Christians. This is our holiday. We can count. We know that when the Annunciation was, we know nine months later approximately there was a baby born. And if you keep messing around with us, we'll take Toyotathon and Shark Week 2. <laughs> and that is my view on holidays. So the real theological point of the calendar, though, the church calendar, is that we, you know, we're going to get into Jonah. We're going to get into the Paul's epistles. We're going to get into Daniel. All the year through, we're going to do all the studying, and we're going to do the culture war thing, and we got a, you know, elections coming. But what I like about the church year is that we now slow down right now for two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're going to look at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to meditate on it and, and drill down on it because it's such a foundational doctrine. And that's what I love about the church calendar. It grounds us for the rest of the year when we're talking about all those things that we think are so important to us in the situation we are in locally what this does is gives us an opportunity to really focus on Christ. So I'm going to read uh, the prologue to John's gospel because I will be covering this week and next week verse 14. We're going to do the first eight words this week and then the rest next week. But this is what John tells us about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and, the, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of God, I'm sorry, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the revelation from heaven of your grace and your goodness and your glory. We thank you for the humiliation of the second person of the Trinity, Lord, that we might be redeemed, that we might be glorified. We thank you, Lord, that you did not remain uh, in heaven apart from us. You did not simply send us prophets. You did not simply send us angels, Lord, but you came yourself to tell us clearly, without doubt, what the final word on sin, death, and Satan would be. You, Lord, are humble. You, Lord, are glorious. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes that we might this, this day behold that glory. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, I'm going to just explain something really fast, because he says logos here, in the, word, in the beginning was the word, 
And, and we could spend a whole day just talking about the word logos, but we're not going to do that. There, there's, it's a, has a long and storied history in Greek philosophy. It's amazing to me that John steals that word and uses it here. But what I'm going to do is just simply refer to the logos, as, in, as we say in English, the word. So Jesus is the name of a man who was born. Before that, right, the second person of the Trinity is the word. He is the word. That was how he was referred to. That is how we come to understand him from the Old Testament times. Now, in the prologue here, the word, we are told, does several things. In John 1.1, we're told that he coexisted alongside of God, meaning that he is both with God there in the beginning, but also separate from God, which is in itself astounding. He was then second, secondly identified with life and the source of light in John 1.8, in comparison to John, who is merely the witness of the light. There is light from heaven, and there is one who sees the light. There is one who sees the light, but he himself is not the light. He is simply testifying about it, and that is helpful to us to understand exactly how we're supposed to respond to the Logos, the Word. And then the prologue reaches its climactic assertion. The Word is announced as fully participating in the realm of creation. Now, docetic and Gnostic heresies that go back all the way to the first century portrayed Christ as an alien messenger who comes into creation for a moment, has something to reveal to us, and then leaves again, untainted by the creation itself, right? All of those heresies from which we have derived the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the definition of Chalcedon, all of those arguments were because people were trying to say, no, the Logos came, the Logos was here, the Logos told us things and showed us things, but the Logos never ate, The Logos never touched flesh. The Logos never touched prostitutes. The Logos never sat with sinners and ate. And it was important, fundamentally, at the very beginning, for the church to say, no, he did not just simply come and and show himself to us, but yet stay far away from fallen humanity. He came in the flesh. He resided for nine months in a womb. He came, right, he was birthed the same way man is always naturally birthed into this world. And then he rested in a trough for feeding animals. And then he was a little boy. And then he was, he had a job and a craft. And then he ate and he walked about and he touched lepers. It is not, right, there's not some weird mystical thing going on here. And where he, he was amongst us, but not really amongst us. He came among us, and he lived among us. He dwelt among us. This is fundamental to who we are as Christians. Allah doesn't come into the world. The Hindus' gods don't come into the world. The Native American gods don't come into the world. If they do, they come as birds, and they fly around in the sky, and you see them, and then they leave again. When you study the gods of other religions, none of the other gods come into the world and participate in the flesh, in humanity, the way our God has. And that's what makes our God distinct. That is why we, have, we celebrate him. That is why it's so important for us to understand exactly what the incarnation is. The concept of flesh here, the word used for flesh, does not carry any negative or evil attributes in John's use because oftentimes we're told right, not to walk according to the flesh. And there's a way to use this word where, where what you're really saying is, don't walk according to the fallen nature. The word is used here not to denote the fallen nature, but to denote the body. He came in a body. He went to the bathroom. That's the hardest part for me to understand. Why? If, you, if you're going to come, fine, come. But you could at least right, avoid somehow the most degrading <laughs> parts of being a human being. But he didn't. The God of the universe urinated. (laughs) He participated. He he drank water and he urinated. And when we talk this way, this is why there are so many heresies. Because people hear people like me say things like that, and they are so offended that you would say such a thing about God, that they would say other offensive things about God that are not true. Mine might be slightly crass, but it's true. 
The usual theological terminology used to describe this idea of the Logos taking upon himself flesh is called the incarnation. Now, this is an English construct from Latin, and, is, and what it means is God incorporated in the flesh. God incorporated in the flesh. Write that down, and let me know as you meditate this coming week what you come up with on that. God incorporated in the flesh. Now, what we're going to do today is focus on the first eight words of John 1.14. The first eight words as they're translated in English. It's fewer words in Greek. In these eight words of John 1.14, there's a lot of mystery, but, the reve- but what is revealed is essential to our faith. What we're going to look at is, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Next week, we will deal with the rest of the verse. The word became flesh and dwelt here in our midst. The second person of the Trinity was incarnate in the man Jesus Christ. Athanas- uh, the Athanasian Creed which is an important one, states it this way. It is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and a human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God, taking that manhood into God. Now, this is where I'm going to be very clear about this. I do not care if you understand that. I care that you believe it. And and the difference between those two things is what makes us the kind of Christians we are. I'm not going to sit down with you and give you a test, and if you cannot articulate what I am explaining here, somehow you're not a Christian. This This is the mysteries, though. These are the things that we are told to believe, whether we understand them or not. Right? Does anyone understand understand really that you, a temporal being, are going to live forever? No. But what am I constantly trying to get you to believe? Right? And, and the incarnation is the same way. You do not have to sit down here and articulate it the way the Athanasian Creed does, but you need to hear this, you need to assent to it, you need to say, yes, I believe that. It's essential to the faith. Now the Christmas story of the incarnation is not the gospel itself. It is merely one rail upon which the gospel travels to the four corners of the earth. The other rail is Resurrection Sunday. This is what uh, Bavink, Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, he calls all of the Christological doctrines the humiliation of God and the exaltation of God. First, God is humiliated, and then he is exalted, and that is the gospel. Okay, and so some people make too much out of Christmas because they think the, the Christmas story is the gospel story, and, and it's not. It's the beginning of the gospel story. That's why it's, you know, at the beginning of the, of the gospels. It alone is not the gospel, but you don't get to Resurrection Sunday without a baby born into this world. You've got to have this first, and so it is essential, but, but sometimes Christians try to pit these things against each other as if, Easter is somehow more important than Christmas, or Christmas is more important than Easter, or whatever. But we have to have both doctrines firmly established in our minds. Because what we are talking about is the humiliation of our God. That's what the theologians call it. Because it's not about hanging on a cross, even. Being a baby who throws up on itself is humiliating. It's humiliating for a human baby. It's humiliating for God to do it. That in in itself is humiliation. The incarnation, and thus the Christmas season, is about the humility of God. Theologian Peter Lightheart wrote, Christmas celebrates the humility of the God who has become a baby, a boy, a teenager, a man, for us. It commemorates the humility of the God who gave his own son up to the horrifying death of the cross rather than lose his people. It is about the humility of a God who offers himself for rebellious sinners. 
Okay? We sinned and we fell. And was it up to us to get back to Eden? Was it up to us to get back to heaven? Was it up to us to build a tower into the skies? No, we did what we wanted to do, and, and the result of it was that we couldn't have been further from God, and so his reach, right, his, the length of his arms to us is longer than our reach of our arms to him. Right? Reach up to the heavens. Can you touch the face of God right now from where you're sitting? Can he touch yours? Right? And this, this is always like when you... When you're talking to teenage boys, they always like to measure their reach. I don't know if your teenage boys do, but my kids watch just enough boxing to now they stand there and they put their arms out and see who has the longer reach. And, and this is something that, that, for some reason, teenage boys get really excited about. But it got me thinking about the fact that if we could do such a thing with God, he reached down to us. He came down to us, and he humiliated himself in doing so. Now, did, is, is, is this his glory? Is this his righteousness? Is this his goodness? Yes, but it's also humiliating for him. It's humiliating for him to be associated with you. It's humiliating for him to be associated with Mary, with Joseph, with, with the shepherds, with the sheep, with the donkey. It's humiliating for him to be associated with the disciples. And, and we, we talk about these things in such a way that we forget how humiliating it is for him. Right? To sit there and to have, to have his feet fondled and cr- cried over and dried with the hair of a prostitute is humiliating to him. But he did it, and he did it joyfully. That is what the incarnation is about. That is what the Christmas story is about. That is what the Gospels are about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and this humiliation of God leads not just to the restoration of man, but the glorification of man. In order to take us as high as he's going to take us in the resurrection and in the final judgment and in the, the glory to come in the next world, in order to get, accomplish that height, he had to go this low. His humiliation is about our glorification. All right, now let's unpack a few things here. The word, the word in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. The word is the pre-incarnate designation for the second person of the Trinity. See how technical I got there? (laughs) Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't talk about himself this way? Well, back before I was Jesus, I was the second person of the Trinity, you know, the word. No, he says, I'm a door, I'm bread, I'm life, I'm light. But this is how theology works. We have to make these distinctions to understand what we're talking about. His name wasn't Jesus at the Exodus. Right, The angel of the Lord who comes and sees Abraham doesn't sit down with them and say over the lamb that they're eating together under the, the oaks of, of Terebinth, oh, my, by the way, my name is Jesus. No. He comes, and, and he looks like uh, to Joshua like a warrior. He looks like to Abraham uh, three angels. He looks like, and you go throughout the Old Testament, and you see all these pre-incarnate manifestations of the second person, and it's always mysterious and strange and terrifying. Okay, it's, almost, it's approachable, but it's approachable in a very strange way. The word took on flesh and became a man, and then his name was Jesus. The angel said that the boy to be born would be named Jesus. The word assumes flesh, and his name is Jesus. The word acquires a human nature without losing any aspect of being the word, of God, And so Jesus is the word of God, a divine and human nature united as God-man. He didn't return to heaven, and now in all of our creeds we say, well, the second person of the Trinity, the word. No, he, he became Jesus and remains Jesus. He became Jesus and remains Jesus. When we refer to him now, he has a name. Why? Because he, he, he has a body. He's a person. Now, these are deep waters, <laughs> These are deep waters, but these are the waters that, that are the boundary of true belief. What does it mean that the divine word became the man Jesus? Now, Paul fleshes this profound and glorious mystery out for us in the book of Philippians. If you turn there, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to look at the way Paul explains this, because that's how the, 
right? After you get through the Gospels and Acts, you get to the Epistles, and what the Apostles are doing are explaining the Gospels for, so that we can understand them. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, we're told, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. Okay, so that's essentially exactly what John says in John 1 1 through 14. But this is Paul's way of explaining it. Okay, have this mind among yourselves because you can have this mind among yourselves because of Christ Jesus. He was in the form of God, but he didn't count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God, and form does not mean a mere outward appearance, like a wax statue, but it means the embodiment or true and exact nature possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something, right? So that's what a form is. A form is the embodiment or true and exact nature possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. So he was in the form of God. Why? Because he's God. Having the form of God is equivalent to saying equality with God. He was there in the beginning with God. He was of God, with God, and is God. Paul's gospel account of the humiliation and exaltation of the Son of God begins with the word pre-incarnation, just as John does in the gospel account. This is very similar. What Paul is doing here is just like John chapter 1. Before, he was in the form of God. But he didn't grasp onto that. He came in the likeness of a slave, a man. As Jesus said in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, so nearing the end of his, his life and his ministry, he turned, remember when I, I told you so much of what we learn about God the Father and God the Son is this conversation that they are having? So there he is walking around on the earth, eating fish, hanging out with sinners, turning over tables. And and, and in the midst of all this, all of his uh, disciples couldn't be more confused by what he's doing. His mother's coming to him. Why are you acting in this strange way? And he turns to the heavens and goes, hey, remember the glory we had together before we made all this crap? right? Before we made all these sinners? Before we made all this stuff? Remember that glory that was just ours? Let's do it again. Glorify me again. But now, is he far away from us, or is he in the midst of us at that point? Is he in heaven, or is he on earth? Is he pre-incarnate, second person of the Trinity, or is he Jesus from Nazareth? He says, you know what? Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's do what we were doing before the world was made, but let's do it here now in front of everyone. Jesus didn't come into the world to become something. He came into the world to reveal himself as himself, as he has always been. This is very important. So many people talk about Jesus earning something, Jesus becoming something. All he did was humiliate himself in order to reveal who he has always been. This is the context. Jesus did not enter the story at Matthew chapter 1. He did not earn his status within the Godhead. This puts to death many of the false teachings about him. He existed forever as the divine Logos, as the word of God, with God, and they gloried in one another. The incarnation that Paul goes on to describe is even starker when we see the crown that was set aside to take on the flesh, let alone the cross. Why, if you're never hungry, would you acquire hunger? Why, if you are never tired, and you go on, right? Your your eyes are open and you're awake forever. Why would you become tired? If you cannot die, why would you acquire to yourself something that can be put to death? Why would you set aside a crown to take upon yourself rags? Why would you humiliate yourself for people who, when you come, don't even recognize who you are? Right? Why would you do that? Imagine if you're a father... 
and you, and, you, and you have this odd opportunity to come into the midst of your family and they not recognize you because you want to bless them and they reject you because they don't recognize you as dad. If, if you want to know, Luke is probably going through this because he shaved his beard. <laughs> I remember when I shaved my beard off, the kids didn't want anything to do with me. They called me neighbor face <laughs> because I came and they did not recognize me. And so here Jesus comes into their midst and they don't want anything to do with him. Now, think, think, you show up, and, and they don't recognize you, and so they don't want any part of you. At that point, how tempting, tempting would it be to go back? Okay, fine. It was a lot easier being in the second person of the, of the Trinity, the divine word, without all this flesh, so I'm out of here. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, we're still in this section. It goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, there's a couple of things here, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. First, Jesus didn't think that his divinity was something to be clutched onto greedily. Paul is saying that Jesus didn't cling on to his honor or his prestige. He didn't use his divinity as an advantage to avoid his calling as Messiah. Jesus didn't use his divinity as a means of escaping his earthly ministry or a violent murder at the end of his life. Jesus didn't cling on to his rights as God. Now, I've been in, in and out of unions my entire life, and let me tell you, man cares a great deal about his rights. If you have children, they, they could be like little shop stewards. Kids are like, well, that's not fair. His pie is bigger than my pie, Right? They clutch greedily onto every single right, and right? They want you to cut that pie exactly the same size, every piece, right? Well, he got two hours of video game time, and I only got an hour and 58 minutes. This was the one recently I got. It's like, okay, well, tomorrow he'll get two hours, and you'll get none. I remember there was this poor family at the courthouse, and we were doing passports, and this family was about to get, like, they, they needed to get this emergency passport because they were leaving. And a clerk didn't want to help them because it would have taken them 10 minutes over their ending period. And then the boss didn't want a complaint from the union, and so the boss wouldn't let them do it. And so I did it, and I, got, I actually got in trouble because, I, because of this, because this is how unions work. Now, not all unions are bad. The history of unions, I'm sorry, I don't want to get into this whole thing. Poor union. If you're a union guy, I love you. But there's something about men and our rights and, and our, we, we want to grab on to what's ours and say, listen, I'm not going to humiliate myself for you. I'm not going to give up something that is mine, that's rightfully mine, to help you out. Why would I do that? And there, there the Lord God is, right? There's the second person of the Trinity in heaven just before the incarnation, just before the Annunciation, just before the Holy Spirit does his magic on Mary's womb, and he's standing in heaven, he's like, you know what, I will gladly give up all of this. I will set all of this aside. I'm not going to cling on to this. I'm not, you don't find Jesus, right, the second person in heaven clutching onto the Father's leg saying, don't, don't, don't do this to me. He sets it all aside. Jesus didn't cling to his rights as God. Aspects of his divinity make his calling impossible, right? He had to do, he had to humiliate himself to make it even possible because you can't kill God. He, ha he had to do something, he had to lay something down in order to make it possible for us even to kill him. He had to, to lay something down in order to take on flesh so that we might even see him. Because in the Old Testament, if you just see God face to face, you, you, your head explodes, you drop dead, you disintegrate. And, and, and we didn't knock him off his throne. We didn't say, hey, we're going to chain you up and drag you down here and humiliate you because it's going to be good for us. He had to do it willingly. He didn't hold on to his divinity in such a way as to avoid what was coming. In John 10, 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And there are all those arrogant people. Well, let's kill him. We can do it. Let's kill him. Right? And, and, that, and John 10 is hilarious, because Lazarus dies. He brings Lazarus back to death. 
and the biggest thing that his, Jesus' enemies can come up with is killing Lazarus again. You're like, didn't he already prove that he, that doesn't matter to him? Oh, so now you're going to go one further, you're going to kill him. Okay, all right. And, and what we're told, what he tells us is, okay, I actually did it, right? You guys couldn't even, and then later in his trial, they don't even have evidence, and so he's got to testify against himself. <clears throat> now, the other thing here is an echo from Genesis 3, because who thought equality with God was something that could actually be grasped? The word grasped could also be translated as robbed. And who tried to rob equality with God? Adam did. Satan told Adam and Eve that God was withholding the fruit because he knew that would make them like God. And so Adam stood by and watched his wife reach out and grab the forbidden fruit to attempt equality with God. I do want to be like God. And I'm going to grasp it. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to rob it. And so here we are trying to rob equality with God, which is not ours to have. And, and there Jesus is in his humility laying down what he already has that he can come down here and save us from ourselves. Jesus is no Adam. Adam wants to be God and is willing to steal it. Jesus is equal to God and doesn't see it as a thing to be grabbed onto greedily. He's willing to come and give that glory away to you and to me and to everyone who believes in him. In his humiliation, Jesus established that he is not like the disobedient Adam or Adam's children. Jesus values love and service and submission and humility more than his own position. There are things that are greater than being the second person of the Trinity. Think of that. There is something greater than having equality with God, and that is giving it to others. Because why? It's, it's better to give than to receive there is no greater love than this, right? That one would lay down his own life for friends. Philippians 2.7 says that he came as a servant or slave. And we already covered this in our Titus series on slavery. This is what man is made to be. He's made to be the slaves of God. This is why in John 6.38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now think about it. If you were offered, okay, we're going we're gonna to take away all your glory, all your divinity, and we're going to send you down there to save them. Now, if me, I'd be like, okay, well, here's a condition then. I can do whatever I want. If I can do whatever I want, I'll do this. That's fine, because then I get something out of it. But he, he humiliates himself by becoming a human being, and then further humiliates himself by saying, okay, I will only do what you tell me to do. I will only do what you tell me to do. He makes himself not just a man, but a slave. Philippians 2.7 says he was born in the likeness of men. Likeness here also means form. Just as he was in the form of God, he came in the form of men, not just a wax statue, but a real man. Just as being in the form of God made him equal to God in every way, so too coming in the form of a man made him equal to man in every way. <coughs> it is important to understand that Jesus didn't leave aspects of his deity in heaven when he entered Mary's womb. He veiled them. He hid them. He suppressed them. Parts of his temptation was that he could have used those aspects at any time that he wanted and could have avoided the suffering. Remember, in Matthew 4, Satan tempts him by what? Hey, turn these rocks into bread. Now, why would he tell him that unless he could do it? And if he had done it, the whole thing would have collapsed in on itself because he would have used his divinity in order to avoid hunger. Before Pontius Pilate, he also is tempted. He says, well, you know, I could call down legions of angels right now and just destroy everything, but I'm not going to do it. I am not going to take the easy way. I am not going to use my divinity to avoid what's coming. His deity is always there, but he is a slave to the Father's will and refuses to use his advantage to avoid the negative aspects of being a finite man. Now, John Calvin, I love you. I'm sorry I'm quoting you on Christmas. <laughs> but he states, John Calvin, that, G that uh, it, what, what all of this means is that Jesus, 
did not grasp onto his divinity greedily. He didn't hold onto it. He didn't say, no, this is mine, and I'm not giving it up. Calvin later wrote, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of his flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Jesus veiled aspects of who and what he really was in order to enter human history to be a slave to his father's will. <coughs> Excuse me. And when he came in the form of man, he did not come as one of superhuman strength or iron constitution. He veiled aspects of his divinity that would have prevented him from truly and fully knowing the human experience. He took on weakness. He took on the vulnerability of flesh. He needed sleep and food and water. He was exhausted at times. He was hungry at times. Our God didn't avoid the material matter of this world as if it were vile in and of itself. He took on creation. He delighted in creation. He delighted in fellowship. He delighted in the table. The the Gospel of Luke, pretty much, Jesus is either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus loved the table. Why? I mean, why why do you think he delighted so much in tables? Because he, would, he, he, he was participating in something that he was going to set before, before us, this table. Because he's inviting us to a feast. He, he showed us what life is all about, feasting with God, celebrating with God. This is the incarnation. Jesus the Lord degraded himself, lowered himself to a station of a suckling babe. He subjected himself to going to the bathroom, to illness, to manual labor, how tempting, right? My kids, they always want to pretend like they have the force, right? Well, I'll just put this Lego thing together by shaking my little finger. How tempting do you think it would have been Jesus nine hours into his shift as a carpenter been like, you know what? Shazam. There's a table, <laughs> right? This last rock I got to lift. There, it's done. He degraded himself. He lowered himself to a station so far below what he really is, who he really was. It's astounding. Gods do not do this. Gods don't become slaves. Great men don't become slaves. The gods of the Egyptians or Greeks or Romans were not slaves. They didn't enter the realm of men unless it was to rape, to steal, to lord it over the affairs of mortals. They didn't lower themselves from their dignity, Buddha and Allah and the pantheistic multitude of Hinduism. No other religion's central message is the humiliation of their God. You go. Let's do one of those survey courses, you know, where we study all kinds of religions. You study every religion in this world. There is no other religion where the central doctrine is the humiliation of their God. When Roman generals were returning from great victories, they would, they would ride them into Rome on a chariot. They'd build this arch for them. They'd have this huge, unbelievable ticker tape parade. And there was a, a slave put in the chariot with them to occasionally lean over and say, you are not a god. Because they needed to be reminded that they're not a god. Because our problem is we want to take upon ourselves way more dignity than we deserve. Way more honor, way more glory. And here we serve a God who gives up all of that to take on humiliation. He laid all of it aside of his own volition in such a way that Israel, the people of God, didn't recognize him. Right? Does Jesus look like the God of Exodus? Does Jesus look like the God of creation? Right now, over time, as you start, as you're watching his ministry, you're paying attention to what he's doing. He's doing things where people say, "What kind of man is this?" But when he first appears, I would nobody would look at him and be like, "Oh, this is clearly the God of Exodus," and he's here to do it again. This is awesome. They did not even recognize their own God, a God they had known for generations and generations and generations. How pathetic are we when we think our own dignity is too great to endure our circumstances or to associate with the lowly? John Calvin again. (laughs) I'm sorry. Christ's humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest humiliation. 
our humility consists in reframing from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. He gave up his right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. Right? When I tell my kids to be humble, what I'm, how many times am I, what I'm really saying is like, hey, stop, stop taking upon yourself so much glory, right? Stop. Keep, remember your place. Jesus, right? If we told Jesus to remember his place, there would be no incarnation. All right. Now, the word of God did not merely take on flesh. The word dwelt among us. He took up, up residence in our midst. The word did not come in the flesh merely to die for us. As I've said many times, if death is what accomplishes our salvation, then his earthly ministry would have been a few days or weeks long. Come in the flesh and let Herod succeed at killing you in the manger. Boom, we all go to heaven. But St. Athanasius, in his book on the Incarnation, wrote this. For this reason, he did not offer the sacrifice on behalf of all. Immediately he came. For if he had surrendered his body to death and then raised it again at once, he would have ceased to be an object of our senses. Instead of that, he stayed in his body and let himself be seen in it, doing acts and giving signs which showed him to be not only man but also God the Word. Jesus possessed a human mind and a human heart. He felt all that we feel, including sorrow and joy and weariness and temptation and anger. Because of this, he can sympathize with us in our trials. Moreover, Jesus lived a human life in the same world in which we live. He was a small boy at his father's knee learning about the world. He learned a trade in his father's carpentry shop. He had friends and neighbors. He paid taxes and was subject to heavy-handed government authorities. He truly lived as we live. And he set an example for us to follow. In the incarnation, Christ took on a full and complete human nature, including a physical body, so that he really could represent us before God. When we go to God, the Father, in Jesus' name, and, and, and we tell them what's going on, how do they even understand what we're saying? Oh God, I am so hungry, I'm ready to steal from my neighbor. And pre-incarnate God's like, I really don't even understand what you're saying. I don't understand what you're saying. What is that? Hunger? I have no idea what that is. Stealing? No concept of it. And there Jesus was, right? They're out in the middle of, and he's got the 5,000, and they're hungry, and they have nothing. And, and do you think Jesus was ever tempted to steal something? Do you think he was hungry? So now we go to the Father and we say, listen, in Jesus' name, I, I am so hungry. I'm ready to steal something. And Jesus is like, Dad, this is a big one. And they need as much help as, they can, as we can give them. Because he knows exactly what we're talking about. <clears throat> Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Try to get my act together. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That temptation, I know that one. Oh, that temptation, I know that one too. These temptations, I know all about it. I understand what you are saying, and I forgive you. His incarnation fulfills also all the types and shadows of the tabernacle and the temple. The phrase, he dwelt among us, literally means he pitched a tent. He tabernacled amongst us. So Jesus is the true tabernacle. And I under, right, this is what I was saying. Here the, the true tabernacle comes into, into the world, and it doesn't look anything like the tabernacle from Exodus, and so everybody's a little confused. I understand that everyone's a little confused. But he pitched a tent in our midst. is literally what the, word, the Greek word dwelt means. And if you go back to Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, we're told that this actually, this indwelling, this 
pitching a tent in our midst is exactly what God has always wanted to do with his people. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. That I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Now that second verse is strange because Moses and later Solomon are shown a temple in heaven to which they make models on earth. But here in the Exodus story, Moses is told to make a sanctuary, a tent, that, they, that he, the Lord God may dwell in our midst. Now, how did that go with the tabernacle? How did that go with the temple? Jesus is like, okay, guys, I'm going to make my own tent. And I'm going to get what I've always wanted. I am going to dwell in your midst. In the past, God had manifested his presence to his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. God lived amongst his people in mystery and awe and symbolism. Now we have not just the mystical, spiritualized presence in a cloud, some frightful, ethereal mystery to worship, but the object of our worship, God himself, is now the tent. He takes upon himself a tabernacle of flesh to dwell among us so that we might behold his glory. Right? This is what John later says, that we saw him, we touched him. The form of God in heaven came as the form of God on earth to remake man in that same form forever. The glory of the Lord, the thing Moses longed to see and what terrified every prophet who ever came near to God in the Old Testament, the glory that is awesome and holy and shattering and good is clothed in flesh so that our eyes may behold him and our hands may touch him. Right? What does Stephen see when he's martyred? He looks, right? He, he, that, now that Christ has come, now that the Spirit has come, now that the church is here on earth, when Stephen, the proto-martyr, the first martyr, to strengthen him, to prepare him, the, heaven, the veil is pulled back very quickly, very briefly, and what does he see? Not some mystery, not some angel like they describe in the Old Testament where it's just this like giant ball of feathers and eyes that's terrifying if you actually draw it. No, he, he, he's, the heavens are open and what he sees is Jesus. Because for not only did he dwell amongst us, he will eternally dwell amongst us. We will always be able to see his glory. We will be able to look upon him for eternity because of the humiliation and the, of the incarnation. We will have a face-to-face, loving relationship directly with the Lord Jesus for eternity. We can embrace him. We can eat with him. We can listen to him. We can look upon him. When we pray to him in fear and temptation, he knows with visceral certainty what we are going through. What, what our reward is when we leave this life is to go to him. From Genesis until the Gospels, God gets closer to man from the tabernacle to the temple. Finally, God comes himself in the flesh, in Jesus, and makes his body the holy and everlasting temple of which we are now becoming a part. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 to 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The divine and the human living, dwelling together in one tent. That is what the church is, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We are his field. We are his building. We are being built together. Human and divine coming together in Christ. Heaven and earth coming together in Christ. It's an overwhelming flood of promises from Genesis to Malachi summarized in Leviticus 26.12. And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And we will live together with him forever. Why? Because he's humble. Because he humiliated himself. Because he didn't grasp on to his divinity. 
Now, Doug Wilson, in his book, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, it's a book on Christmas, this is what Doug wrote. And I never get enough of this particular quote. It says, Our good God, our overflowing God, our God of yes and amen, has always been able to promise far more than we are able to believe. I am not here speaking of unbelief or of hard hearts, which is another problem. I am speaking here of true and sincere faith, a God-given faith, but one which is still finite and which God loves to bury under an avalanche of promises. We serve and worship the God who overwhelms, who delights to overwhelm. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, a cascading waterfall of infinite pleasures with no top, no bottom, no back, no front, and no sides. Nothing but infinite pleasure in motion, and every one of those pleasures is attached to his promises. And and this is the reality. If this incarnation, if, if the prologue of John is so unbelievably astounding compared to what the Jews were expecting. And we know what we know, and we have the Spirit of God, and we actually believe these things, right? We have a capacity to understand and to believe more than the Old Testament Jews ever did. And if he, out, if he astounded them to that degree in John 1, how much more is he going to astound even us? Even us. When whatever happens to this flesh that we're wearing now, after it's laid in the ground and it's long forgotten, right, and and the molecules that work your body are somewhere now in Florida, and as I truly believe, we all come right up out of the ground where we were buried. At that moment, how much greater is that going to be than what we can possibly imagine, given what we've been shown How much closer to him are we going to be than we are now? How much more understanding? How much more glory are we going to receive? Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Now think about this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, if the richness we receive in him is the opposite of the poverty he took upon himself to descend and dwell here, how how do you mathematically figure that out? Right? There's no number system under under the sun that's going to help us figure out how much greater what we receive is compared to the poverty that he took upon himself. Like there's there's no I mean you can talk about kids playing in mud pies naked on the beach and then suddenly they're given a palace but that doesn't even come close to what we're talking about. All that he gave up, he's going to give to you. Merry Christmas. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand in some way these staggering, glorious, beautiful revelations of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us by John. We thank you for his ministry, John's and Paul's, to help try to explain these things to us. I pray that as we go from here, Lord, that even if we do not understand them, that we would grab hold of these things with our hearts and with our minds, that we would delight in you, that we would be filled with joy and awe and wonder and gratitude, and that we would delight, Lord, to love and to be gracious in, in equal measure to the love and grace that we have received from you. We, th- we pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen.